Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you, uh, people really needing to hear your word, really desperate for your word, as we always are, but maybe this week in particular, we need to hear your word. Um, Lord, we're a, a broken and a needy people. Some of us here are very acutely aware of that, and others of us don't have a clue, but need to be made aware of it that we might turn to you. So today, Lord, as we, as we look into your word, would you be gracious to us? Would you teach us? Would you fill our hearts with affection for the one who died in our place, who did what we could never do, who took what we deserved upon himself so that we might have what only he deserved? God, lift up Jesus, magnify Jesus, minister to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here within the Veritas family of churches. So we have our congregation here. We have a congregation in the short north that's worshiping right now. And then we have another congregation that's set to launch at the beginning of next year on the east side, Pickerington, Reynoldsburg, um, over there. So praise God for His grace doing a, a good work uh, there in, amongst us. We're thankful for that. We're trying to hopefully just follow the Spirit, keep up with the Spirit and what He's doing. Um, this story, I mean, it's kind of just an engaging story, isn't it? It's kind of like, I think the sermon's over. That was just such an engaging story, but it's not over because I have to preach the sermon. So we'll continue through Genesis chapter 9, but you, you are going to really see the gospel clearly here in Genesis chapter 29. But the crazy part is, is you're going to see it from a place you didn't think you were going to see it because this is supposed to be a story of Jacob and Rachel, isn't it? But I think we most clearly see the gospel from a different person. Well, we need to do some background work, just as you wouldn't jump into uh, 24 or uh, Downton Abbey or whatever you watch, right, on, on number seven, on episode seven. We got to kind of catch us up and see what's going on here to really understand where we're at. You can't read any of the Old Testament, really any of the scriptures, I would say, without keeping Genesis chapter 12 in view. Genesis chapter 12 is key to the rest of the storyline of the Bible. So remember that here as we go through this story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Remember Genesis chapter 12, what happens? God makes a promise. God establishes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, you know all the dysfunction, all the hurt, all the sin that's, that's in the world? You know about all that? Guess what? I'm going to do something about that, and I'm going to use you to do something about that. One of your descendants is going to be the one who's going to eradicate sin. He's going to be the one to do something about this messed up planet we have. And so from then on, as we read the scriptures, we're kind of looking in saying, is, is this guy the one? Who's going to be the one? Who's going to be the, the prophet of prophets? Who's going to be the priest of priests? Who's going to be the king of kings? Who's it going to be? And we're reading through the scriptures trying to see that. So as that storyline plays out, imagine how important firstborn sons are. Pretty important because we're talking about a seed carried through each line, right? So, so firstborn son starts to be pretty important, and that's why you see a lot of the jacked up stuff happen that you see even with Jacob previously trying to get the birthright because that's, that's the seed. I want, that, I want that to be me. I want the blessing. I want the covenant to be all about me. 
So as we look through this story, remember the promise, and then remember the importance of the firstborn son. Here we find ourselves with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. So it's just a a few generations, and we're already pretty messed up. Here's two things we know about the family, about Jacob's family. Two things. Number one, he comes from a family chosen by grace. Get that very clearly. If you've read any of the Bible, you know that these people are not the good people. These are people chosen by grace. His family, it's very easy to see, was chosen by grace. God says, not Abraham, if we team up, man, this could be amazing. I've been watching you. You're awesome. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to put my love on you because I'm putting my love upon you. (laughs) Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it. I'm choosing you because I'm choosing you. That's grace. Nothing to do with Abraham. So this is a family that's been chosen by grace. Secondly, though, kind of ironically, is it's a family full of brokenness, full of dysfunction, isn't it? You can clearly see that as you read through this biblical narrative. It's really not that much different from the TV shows that some of us watch. I should say some of you watch. Kate and I are too busy praying and reading the Bible to watch TV. But some of you guys watch some of these shows, right? And it's, it's not too much different than those. In fact, it's not too much different than some of the shows we say we could never watch that or don't ever let your kids watch something like that because it's just full of dysfunction. Uh, it's full of sin. It's full of swindlers. It's really surprising, the history of the Bible. Jacob's family, not only chosen by grace, full of brokenness and dysfunction. You know, it makes me, I paused as I thought through this, and I thought, when did we ever get the idea that this was different? You know, like, when did we ever get the idea of the church that this is the good people gathered together? When did we start thinking that, that people who really struggle with sin, people who, who really have big problems, that they're not part of God's people? Those are people who not yet part, not yet in the fold, you know? And so the rest of us pretend like we don't have any problems and try to hide our problems because, after all, God's people are the people who have it together. Read the Bible, like the first four chapters, and that is exploded out of the water. You see it here as well. These are not the good people. These are not the people that have it together. These are people chosen by grace, yet dysfunction continues, but chosen by grace. These people, Jacob's family... Man, they're in need of some serious grace, these people. These people, they need the kind of grace that is, is going to really do something powerful in their life. They need like 200-proof grace, okay? Don't act like you guys don't know what they do. They need 200-proof grace. They need crazy, radical, uh, the kind of grace that makes religious people just kind of like, I can't believe that he would accept people like that. The kind of grace that makes the religious people shudder. The kind of grace that makes, makes the sinners rejoice. Tears in their eyes. Finally, we have hope. This is the kind of grace that this family is in desperate need of. A scandalous grace, a surprising grace. So with that backdrop, let's dive in here and look at this account. I want to look at, kind of look at it from two perspectives. First of all, from Laban's perspective. Let's look at Laban a little bit, and then let's look at Leah. So Laban's plan and Leah's pain. Laban's plan and Leah's pain. 
Laban, uh, he's got a big problem. He's got two daughters, and uh, he's going to marry, he needs both of them to, to be married off, which sounds pretty easy, and it is easy um, in one regard. His younger daughter Leah is beautiful, really easy to marry her off, no problems there. Now the first daughter, not so much. So, with that in view, Jacob, he sent away from his homeland because his brother's going to kill him because he just stole the birthright. So his mom's like, you got to get out of here. And so go see my brother, marry one of his daughters, go. So he travels, he goes off he, in this, you know, kind of wonderful God-ordained meeting. He meets some shepherds. How's Laban? Great. His daughter's coming. Ah, oh, perfect. I'm at the well. Here comes the daughter. He tries to sh- shoo those guys off. Did you notice that? Like, come on, go, 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 go. The, the, the sheep don't need to gather together. Get moving, get moving. I see this beautiful woman. I need you to get out of here. I need to, you know, work my magic here. And they're like, no, we can't. You know, we got to water them together. So fine, he like, he rolls away this stone. The text doesn't tell you, but this stone is like two or three guys needed. But he's, he's seen a beautiful woman. So all of a sudden, he's, he's amped up. He's got adrenaline. He just rips that thing out of the way. Like, come on, get your water and get moving, guys. And then up comes Rachel, and they interact and talk. He kisses her, probably a kiss more about recognizing each other as family than, than something um, romantic. And then Rachel heads back to talk to her dad. And uh, Laban, very excited, right? Very excited that, that Jacob is here. So he comes down to meet Jacob, and what does he say? He says, surely... And you're, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, in that, he's probably saying, when we first kind of glance at the text, oh, yeah, you're related. But I think maybe there's something more in that, don't you? Maybe he's saying, like, ah, Jacob, you're a deceiver, just like me. We're cut from the same cloth, me and you. We're just, we're just alike. You're just like me. You're bone of my bone. You're flesh of my flesh. You're, you're cut from the same cloth as me. I think maybe that's what he's he's saying as well. Because Laban, he's a swindler. He's, he's a deceiver. You see that very clearly, don't you? His, Jacob's mom, swindler, do you notice the text continues to say over and over? Why does it repeat that this was Jacob's mom's brother? Why does it continue to say that? Because his mom's a swindler. They just got done swindling to get the birthright away from their other her son and his brother, right? They're swindlers. They're deceivers. And so the text is trying to show you, look at this family of deceivers. Well, Laban, a month passes. Jacob stays there and works for, for Laban. And Laban, such a kind, generous man, isn't he? He says, you can't just work for me for free. Ah, name your price. Name your price, young man, whatever you'd like. I'm, I'm just so thankful that you're here right? Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Laban has two daughters, Leah the older, Rachel the younger. Now, what is this about Leah's eyes being weak? Well, you might think, is she cross-eyed? Is she fish-eyed? Does she have, like, Coke bottle glasses? What, what is it with this girl? Well, I think as unclear as that is, the text makes it clear by describing the opposite in Rachel, right? 
So it doesn't say, Leah had weak eyes, Rachel, 20-20 vision. And she, she had. That's not what it says. Leah, weak eyes. Rachel, drop-dead gorgeous. So Leah is the ugly sister. She's the sister nobody wanted. She's the sister that's always been kind of in the background. Rachel, beautiful, beautiful younger sister. So who do you think Jacob traveled all this way to marry? This homely, homely little girl or this drop-dead gorgeous woman? Yeah. He's interested in Rachel. He's not interested in Leah. He's interested in Rachel. So the customary bride price, I like this idea that you pay a price to the father-in-law for, for his daughter. I kind of like that. Like, hey, Ryan, I'm interested in marrying Shay. I like BMW convertibles. <laughs> like, let me know, you know? Uh, and so a customary bride price would have been about maybe three years' wages and maybe three to five at the most, and he offers seven years' wages. So he really wants to make sure that he gets this girl, right? He really wants to make sure that Laban is not going to say, no, maybe not. And so he offers double the normal price for this girl. But he kind of shows his hand a little bit to Laban, right? Now Laban knows, man, this guy will do anything for this girl. He is head over heels for this Rachel. I think I can take advantage of that, perhaps. And he's going to take advantage of this little young, lovesick kid. Look at Laban's response in verse 19. It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Like, what kind of response is that? Can I have your daughter? You're not worse than anyone else. He never says yes. He just says, like, yeah, you're not that bad of a guy. You, another guy, either way. And so he never really commits and says yes, does he? But Jacob, Jacob's too starry-eyed to notice. He's just so excited that he's going to get to be with Rachel. So he doesn't even notice. Verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Oh, that's so sweet. So seven years pass. Jacob is full of desire for this drop-dead gorgeous woman. Seven years pass. Then Jacob said to Laban, verse 21, Give me my wife that I may go into her. For my time is completed. I mean, this guy gets right to the point, doesn't he? Like, what happened to that, you know, someone knew their wife talk. Now it's going to, this is, this is getting very forward here. You know, I don't think if you're in, getting married anytime soon, I wouldn't suggest, hey, father-in-law, could I have your daughter? I'm interested in having sex with her now. I wouldn't necessarily take that tactic if I were you. But this is what Jacob says after seven years. He's ready to have his wife. He's ready to bring her near. Laban prepares for the wedding. This is a big deal. He invites the people. He prepares a feast. This is a big deal. Weddings were a big deal. And so he, he gets everything ready. Th this would have been a week-long celebration. So they knew how to do parties. They knew how to do weddings then. It was a week-long celebration. And so at the end of the first day, the husband would take his wife, and they would go off and consummate their marriage. But Laban has this crazy trick up his sleeve. Here's his scheme, verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Wow. 
the deceiver has been deceived, hasn't he? The guy who just a few chapters before is deceiving his dad, who his blind dad who can't see, he's deceiving him and being someone else. Now he's caught with someone else. Very interesting. Now, I, if you're like me, you're thinking, how do you not notice? Like, you're getting a pretty good look at this gal, right? I mean, what's going on there? Again, week-long party, a seriously good party. Jacob's probably a little tipsy, maybe a lot tipsy. And it's dark. Leah may have been veiled. All these things come together, and he doesn't know till the morning he wakes up, and it's Leah. So Jacob says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Man, he is outraged. Like, what kind of person could do something like this? What kind of person would deceive someone? Unbelievable. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Notice what he calls his daughter, his firstborn daughter, in verse 27. This one. Just go with this one for a week. Ah, oh, Leah. He's kind of, his response is basically like, I'm surprised you didn't know that. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Were you confused? Oh, yeah, here, we can't marry the second daughter until you marry the first. I'm surprised you didn't know that. Did you think you were going to marry Rachel? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, so we got a little problem here. Anyway, just finish the week with her, and then we'll, we'll talk about Rachel after that. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban, Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. He gives his servant, Bilal, to his daughter as a servant. So Rachel, verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So Laban has accomplished quite a bit at the end of this scene, hasn't he? He's got both of his daughters married off. He's got 14 years of free work. It's, he's sitting pretty. This is great. The problem is he's left a trail of blood behind him. There's dead bodies everywhere. He, he doesn't even notice it, doesn't even care about it. Well, let's look at the second part then. Let's look at Leah's pain. Think about Leah's life, okay? Leah lives her whole life knowing that she's not as pretty as her younger sister. You can imagine the conversations that, hey, hey, nice to meet you. Yes, here's my daughter Leah, my daughter Rachel. Oh, hi, Leah. Oh, my. Rachel, you are so pretty. Laban, you better get a shotgun to keep the boys away from her, right? She, she hears this all the time, over and over. It's constantly about Rachel. She's constantly being noticed. I'm constantly being in, in, unnoticed in the background, forgotten about. This is her entire life. And so she has quite a disdain for her sister. She's annoyed at the attention she gets that, that, that Rachel gets, and she doesn't get. And so she's always feeling like, I need to do something to be noticed. I need to do something to be recognized. And while they're young and while her sister's dreaming about marriage, thinking about that week-long wedding, planning it in her head, Leah's thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to have such a thing. Who would ever love a person like me? She's just full of hopelessness, wondering if she'll ever have a husband. 
And even her own father, right? Her own father, who's supposed to love her and tell her she's the most beautiful girl in the world. What does he do? He uses her in a ploy to get something that's helpful to him. So even her own father uses her and abuses her. And then it gets worse. Uh, You get married. You finally do get married. Oh, wow, I'm married. I never thought I'd be married. And what happens? Your husband doesn't want to be with you. He hates you. And so now I, I thought everything that would be right with my life if I got married, and now I'm married, and my husband hates me. Even worse than that, he's actually in love with another woman. Even worse than that, it's stinking Rachel again. And even worse than that, she's right here. I'm living right here, watching their beautiful marriage right in front of my face as I continue to just have no hope and be desperate. So Leah was single, desperate, and alone. Now she's married, desperate, and alone. Not much has changed for Leah. It's pretty bad. Now with that sort of background and foundation laid, I want to consider maybe some things we learn about from this text. Six things for you. Three things that are bad news and three things that are good news. Just get through the bad news. It'll be good in a minute. First of all, first thing is that sin is an unstoppable force. Sin is an unstoppable force. See, we think that sin is something that you choose to do from time to time. And then what you start to realize is sin actually starts to to control you. It actually starts to do you instead of you choosing to do it, right? And so it starts to get in there and, and, and make you make choices and, and make you go certain ways and make you do certain things. It's not just a choice you make from time to time. It's very active. It overtakes your family. It wrecks and destroys. It grows out of control. You can't contain it or manage it. That's a lie. Look at this family. Sin started, and let's deceive this person. Now we've got to deceive this person. Now that person's deceiving us, and we're deceiving them, and it's just, it's a, it's a mess. It's growing out of control, and it's starting to use them instead of them just using it. So you're not managing your sin. It's going to do a work on you if it hasn't already. It, it's going to get in the nooks and crannies. It's going to infiltrate everything. And if not for God's grace, your life is going to be completely ruined. That's what we see here with this family. Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, deceive Isaac. There's sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau. They hate each other. Esau's going to kill Jacob. Jacob's got to run. Rebecca's brother, Laban, then deceives Jacob. Uh, Leah and Rachel have sibling rivalry. They fight for position. They hate each other. Jacob then gets married, hates his own wife, Leah, and marries another, her sister, Rachel. Then after that, think of what comes next is Jacob and Rachel's kids, they got some problems too. Remember the story of Joseph? If not, come back. You'll hear about the story of Joseph. They're going to neglect their brother again, sell him off. It's it's just, it's growing. It's an epidemic that's really overtaking this family. It's an unstoppable force. Secondly, disappointment reveals your misplaced hope. The key phrase in this entire passage is verse 25. Behold, it was Leah. That's the key to this entire passage. One commentator says this, this is a miniature of our delusionment experienced 
from Eden onward. A miniature of our delusionment experienced from Eden onward. What's he saying? He's saying that no matter what you put your hope in in this world, in the morning, it's Leah. No matter what it is, in the morning, it's Leah. Job, in the morning, it's Leah. A marriage, in the morning, even good marriages, in the morning, it's Leah. Uh, Kids, this type of life, this type of house, uh, being married to this type of person, having the perfect family, whatever it is, being known, all these things in the morning you wake up, it's Leah. You're laying next to Leah. It's disappointment. None of those will really fulfill you like, they, like you hope they will. None of them. Nothing in this world will be Rachel. It's always Leah. It's always disappointment, no matter what it is. So that maybe leads us to think, if nothing in this world is Rachel, perhaps there's something beyond this world that actually is Rachel. What I want to ask you right now is to search your heart and ask yourself, what are you hoping in that is in the morning is going to be Leah? What are you putting your hope in that is not the ultimate hope? It's a lesser hope, and you're going to wake up and find out it's Leah. Ask the Lord to search your heart in that. Talk with your community group about that. Discuss that. Hey, guys, what are we hoping in that we're going to wake up one day and go, man, this great marriage is Leah. Man, this job, I'm here. It's Leah. Man, these kids didn't take me long. They are Leah. Whatever it is, the hope of a husband, the hope of a wife, whatever it might be, in the morning, it's Leah. And maybe some of us are in the midst of the disappointment. It's like, yeah, you don't need to tell me it's Leah. I've woken up, and I know it's Leah. It's very clear to me right now. The disappointment is fresh. You're experiencing it right now and wondering if there's any hope. Remember, this first three are bad news. I'll get to the good news. Hang with me. Disappointment reveals your misplaced hope. Number three, I had to, I had to go here for us because this is where so many of us are. Your family makes a terrible Savior. Your family makes a terrible Savior. Now, isn't the Bible's definition of sin very interesting? I think we see here the Bible's definition of sin being very interesting. Let me tell you what I think uh, I see here. Is that we're, we assume, right, that the Bible is going to con- not, not allow, that it's going to speak against things like orgies, drunkenness, murder, hatred, racism, rape, abusing children, right, all those things. And it does. Praise God. It does speak against those things. But we don't often think that sin would look like a picture of a beautiful family, right? We don't think sin would look like uh, a white picket fence, uh, beautiful children, and a wonderful family. But I think what we see here in this story is that that picture rivals any of the most wicked pictures in your mind that you can have. It can. It's possible for that picture to rival any other wicked picture. How is that? How in the world is that? Because if you build your hope on anything besides Christ, that is evil. That is wicked. You're, you're saying, I don't need Christ. I need this thing. Anytime you're saying, if I had that, I'd be okay. If I had that, my life would have meaning. If I had that, I'd be fulfilled. You have that in Christ, seeking out in other things. Many of us here, it's family. We're looking for that in our family. 
your family cannot possibly carry that burden. If you put that burden on your husband to be your Savior, on your wife to be your Savior, on your kids to be your Savior, it's going to kill you, and it's going to kill them. Jacob thought, if he had Rachel, then my life would be finally where I want it to be. All that stuff in the past would be erased by the beautiful love of Rachel. And Rachel would make my life what I've always wanted it to be. Finally, I'd be with this beautiful wife, ready, uh, be, be a couple of the promise, ready to give birth to the son of promise. Man, that's who I'd be. That's who I, I've always wanted to be. And in the morning, he wakes up, and what is it? It's Leah. Now, we can talk freely about uh, modern family. Here's a little, little way I can see this in us, right? We can talk freely about modern family, but nobody admits they watch House of Cards, right? Why is that? It's like a really popular show, yet none of us watch it. That's interesting. We all talk freely about modern family, but don't, why? Because we have this idol grading system, right? So like in modern family, you see the idol of family, and that's okay. Like God forgives that. That's fine. Over here, you see the idol of sexuality and power and all those things. Of course, those are bad, but this one is okay. God accepts like the idol of family and marriage and good kids and all that. He accepts that. That's fine. He doesn't look upon that like he looks upon these other evil sins. No, it's all meant to lead us to repentance. It's all meant to lead us to say, Christ, you're the only thing that could possibly fulfill us. And yet we have this sort of grading system where one is not as bad as the other. Look, if you put your hope in your family and your kids and your husband and your wife the best scenario, the very best scenario, is that your life just unravels and you see that it's not fulfilling and you turn to Christ. That's the best scenario. The worst scenario is you don't see it, your kids can't stand you, your, your marriage is a wreck, and you just continue to live in it until you wake up face-to-face -face with Jesus and then realize oh, that stuff was Leah. I think it's an invitation from the Lord to realize now it's Leah. So accept that invitation from the Lord. Turn to him instead of turning to this thing. Disappointments in this life are invitations from Christ, waiting, full of love for you, full of grace, waiting for you to recognize him as the Savior that he is. Your family, it makes a terrible Savior. Now for the good news. Three points of good news. First, God works with broken people. If you read the Bible and read through the Old Testament especially and think you're reading a list of role models, you have a terribly unchristian view of the Bible. That's not what the Old Testament is for. If you think, oh, I should be more like David, I should be more like Moses, I should be more like Abraham, I should be more like Jacob, that's, no, don't do that. <laughs> Those people are pointing us towards the one. Remember, who's going to be the one? Who's going to be the prophet? Who's going to be the priest? Who's going to be the king? Jesus, that's the one. These other ones are not trying to be, uh, you know, guys you're supposed to emulate. Their lives are totally wrecked. But the amazing thing is that God continues to work through these wrecked people, doesn't he? These people chosen by grace, yet families full of dysfunction and craziness, lives just wrecked. He continues to patiently work through these people. God works with broken people. So, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that we can stop pretending to be these whole people. 
to have it all together, right? Because God has always worked through broken people. He only works through broken people. He'll continue to work through broken people. He always works through sinful, broken, messed up people. I'm looking at many of them right now. He's doing a work amongst us, isn't he? Why? Because we're great? No. Because we're messed up, jacked up people that he's shown grace to. And we're so thankful for that. And he's baptizing people, and he's bringing people to know Jesus, and he's introducing people into community like they've never experienced it before. All these things are happening. How wonderful. In broken, messed up people like us. So God works with broken people. Fifth, God works through broken people. Not only does he work with broken people, he works through broken people. Think about what God is doing in Jacob here. And, and sort of the storyline of Jacob's life. God's doing something here in Jacob, but it's very interesting who he uses to grow Jacob. So God is growing Jacob. God is kind of knocking off the edges of Jacob's character. He's, he's trying to make him into the man he desires him to be. And he's using who to do that? He's using Laban to do that. This guy is not the guy who should be the discipler of Jacob. This guy is a deceiver, a liar, but yet God is using him in the life of Jacob, to bring Jacob to where he wants him. I think maybe Jacob realizes this briefly. He, I think he maybe realizes at one point, you know what, Laban's a lot like me. This Laban guy, he's actually, in fact, he's exactly like me because I'm a person who loves to do what's best for me. I'm a person who loves to take circumstances and organize them and try to manage them in such a way that I get what I want. And so Laban actually, yeah, he's exactly like me. I'm exactly like Laban. It's almost like God uses sinners to grow other sinners in grace. What a crazy idea. God might actually use sinners to grow other sinners in grace. So Jacob, he's being beaten down, he's working for 14 years, he's being deceived, he's being constantly lied to. We have to assume that even though we don't have all the stories, it's not like Laban's a great boss to work for. I'm sure he's constantly lying and deceiving and changing the story. 14 years of this, that'll, that'll grow a man's character for sure. So a question for you, I wonder if there's any Labans in your life that God has placed there to grow you in grace. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a circumstance, what is it, the Laban, sort of speak, in your life that God's using you, using in you to grow you in grace? It's something you've probably said to yourself, if God's in control of everything, why this? He could have done something with this, could have done something different with this. Why didn't he? If he's in control of all things. And he's smiling and saying, I put that there to transform you. Because I love you way too much to leave you where you're at. And I'm transforming you and I'm calling you and I'm inviting you in to be a different person, to be changed by my grace. So God works through broken people, even broken people like Laban. Sixth and finally, God works in broken people. God works in broken people. He works with broken people. He works through broken people. Praise God, he works in broken people. Perhaps this story more than any other story, I think, gives a picture of God being attracted to weak people. And this is part of the whole narrative of Scripture, but here we see it so clearly. Look at the last portion of this text in verse 31 through 35. 
When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now think of the magnitude of this verse. Remember the importance of the seed? It's very important in this promise, in this covenant that he's given us, that he's given to them. Promise to Abraham, seed becomes very important. He looks upon Leah and he opens her womb. Children are very important in this thing. Having children, very important. Having boys, firstborn son, very important. Look who the Lord's drawn to. He's drawn to the ugly sister, isn't he? The one who's been trampled on, abused, ignored, forgotten. This sister is the one the Lord's drawn to. That's interesting. And it's going to be God's cho- she is going to be God's chosen instrument. That's very significant to this text. Verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now my husband will be attracted to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Now, this is a pretty pathetic thing we see, isn't it? Have a son. Now I'll be noticed. I've never been noticed in my entire life. I've always been overlooked. Maybe now. I thought maybe it was when I got married. Now maybe it's that I have my firstborn son. Now my husband will love me. Now he'll know I'm the one. I'm the chosen one. Nope. All right, let's have another kid. Now he'll know. Now he'll love me. Now he'll be attracted to me. Now he'll see me as beautiful. No. Son number three. Now my husband will love me. No. Now look what happens in verse 35. A drastic change. And she conceived again. Okay, so this is just going to happen again. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Notice the change in her statements. Now my husband, now my husband, now my husband, now I will praise the Lord. She changed from talking about a love that she desired to talking about a love that she already had. She went from saying, I need to acquire this, I need to get this, if I can receive this love, then I'll be somebody, to saying, I have this love, and I am somebody because of it, and I don't need any other loves. This love is secure. This love has already been proven. It's already present. Even in the midst of my seeking after other loves, this love was present. Two significant things here. First, it's surprising that Leah doesn't use use the generic word for God. The generic word for God was Elohim. Uh, That was the generic word. That's what everybody would have used. She doesn't use that word. She uses the word Yahweh, which is translated the Lord. Well, that, that name for God was revealed to Abraham as the God of the covenant when he came down to Abraham. How's this woman, this ugly sister, this forgotten about, how does she know about the God of promise? How does she know this God of grace, the God who chooses by grace? How does she know this God? She knows, knows this Yahweh, knows this God. She's exactly who he's come for. She's a desperate woman who knows she can do nothing to save herself. She's, she's finally there after, having three, after getting married, being hated, having three boys, continuing to be hated. She's finally there. 
And so she's calling out to Yahweh. I'll put my hope not in the love of another man to give me significance. I put my hope in the God of grace who saves the ugly, the needy, and the weak. She calls out to the covenant God, the God of grace, Yahweh. Secondly, the second significant thing is what happens uh, later and who that child is. Judah. What's so important about Judah? Well, if you read in the book of Matthew and read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what name is there? Judah. Jesus comes through this broken, ugly, forgotten woman. She's the mother of our Savior. Not Rachel. Leah is the mother of our Savior. She has the seed. Praise God. She is the one who has the seed of the one. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he says exactly the same thing. Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. He also says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the good news of the gospel for people like us. The text shows us that there's a heavenly bridegroom, that Jesus is the bridegroom. He came and died and he lost his beauty so that we might have his beauty. The great news is that even though all of us look like Leah's to Jesus, we're Rachel's. Every one of us, even though we feel and look like Leah to Jesus, we're Rachel. We're the beautiful bride that the husband can't wait to be with that the husband would do anything for, work 14 years. Yeah, it seems like a day to be with this woman. That's who Jesus sees us as. That's who we are to Jesus. And Jesus comes for the sick, abused, weak-eyed, abandoned, adulterers, swindlers, prostitutes, man, even the people that put their hope in, in their family. Jesus comes for people like us. So if you're still searching for God, let me encourage you that you're searching for a love that you're, you'll never find here in a person on earth. You'll never find it here. It's always going to be Leah. Maybe you've felt that already. If not, you'll continue to feel it. It'll constantly be a disappointment until you turn to Christ. Look at Leah. She gets her life back when she finally looks to the God of grace. That's when she finally gets her life back. So Jesus Christ is what nothing else could be for her. She says, I, want to look to any, I don't want to look to anything else to give me joy and happiness, but only to King Jesus. So also, if you're struggling, if you're single and angry that you're not married, you're desperate to be married, even the best marriages, remember, even the best ones, in the morning, they're always Leah compared to the love of the bridegroom Christ. And in heaven, if you have no husband or wife on this earth, in heaven you have you have the husband, you have the bridegroom waiting for you, the bridegroom you could never find here, and he loves you. In your eyes, in his eyes, you are Rachel. The only eyes that count are the ones that are radiant with you. They're ravished by you. That's the only comfort that can really never be quenched. Let's pray. Father, Thank you 
for sending Christ to save sinners like us, people who find their hope in all sorts of things, people who try to manipulate circumstances and do things with their life so that we can have a leg up, swindlers and and adulterers and prostitutes and liars and deceivers, pretenders, all of us, God. We thank you for coming and saving people like us. Some of us don't yet really even see how sinful we are, and we need your grace to be able to see that. Would you kindly show us that? We know that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, so please, for those of us who are still confident in ourselves, would you show us that we desperately need you? Some of us, God, on the other hand, are there at the bottom of the pit and don't know what to do, constantly still looking, still hiding. God, would you, would you allow us to turn to you? Would you allow us to believe the gospel and say, hey, I'm really messed up, and I really, really need Jesus, and I'm really thankful for a Savior who would save a person like me. God, do that great work in us. Thank you for this story of Rachel and Leah and Jacob. And God, thank you that even though we feel like Leah's and look like Leah's, in your eyes, we are Rachel. We love you so much. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.